My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Michelle DeCotney and Olivia Marie Goloski. There's a common idea that people in the arts, on the whole, get it. That they are a bit more enlightened, a bit more open-minded, a bit more oriented towards ideals that include justice. Now, whatever else you might be able to say about where this idea came from, and what basis it might or might not have, the sad truth of the matter is that people in the arts are produced by and live in the same oppressive, violent, messed-up world as the rest of us. And as today's guests discuss, The same kinds of marginalizations and exclusions that shape the rest of society also shape everything about how communities and institutions in the arts sector function, from access to resources, to aesthetic norms, to interpersonal conduct, and far beyond. Michelle DeCotney has been working in the performing arts in Treaty 7 territory in Calgary, Alberta, for more than 30 years. She is a white, working-class lesbian with invisible disabilities and a socialist worldview. For the first 15 of those years, she worked mainly in mainstream theatre companies. She witnessed and experienced any number of inequities. Eventually, in the face of a mainstream that wouldn't change and was actively hostile to being told that it needed to, she struck out in a different direction. From a series of artist-community collaborations that started in 1996, stage-left productions emerged in 2003 as an alternative theatre performance company with DeCotney as founder and artistic director. Stage-left is focused on being a politicized safe space for diverse artists whose work focuses on using the arts as a form of activism. Over the years, they've put on a wide range of productions, hosted many festivals, shot 30 films, and engaged in a huge number of social justice-focused popular theatre interventions that push beyond what theatre is conventionally understood to be. In particular, much of their work has drawn on the approach known as theatre of the oppressed, a means of promoting social and political change originally elaborated by Brazilian theatre practitioner Augusto Boal in the 1970s. Olivia Marie Goloski is Métis, Two-Spirit, and an artist. She grew up in Fort McMurray in Treaty 8 territory, and now she lives in Calgary. Goloski has worked in film, theatre, and radio as a stage manager, as a playwright, and as a writer. Until quite recently, she was working in mainstream arts contexts in the city. She, too, was facing and seeing lots of marginalization in those contexts, One particularly galling aspect for her of how the arts sector in Canada has remained resolutely colonial is that even through the recent boom in arts funding focused on responding to the report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, relatively little of that funding has actually been going into supporting Indigenous artists and Indigenous-led projects. During her time working in the mainstream, Goloski was also getting to know DeCotney and her work, and she reached a point about two years ago where she had to withdraw from mainstream contexts and began to work exclusively with Stage Left and with grassroots arts organizations run by and for Indigenous people. 
While Stage Left is still involved in doing and supporting theatrical pop-up social justice interventions, most recently, the organization has turned its attention away from more formal productions and into advocacy work promoting equity in arts funding and arts policy. Decotney, Golowski, and Stage Left more generally have been involved in establishing the Calgary Congress for Equity and Diversity in the Arts, or CEDA, to push for policy change at the local, provincial, and national levels. Not only that, they've begun to use the tools of theater of the oppressed as a way to advance an equity agenda throughout the arts sector in Canada. Decotney and Golowski speak about injustice in the arts, about theater of the oppressed and the work of stage left, and about their current efforts to push for justice and equity in the arts sector. We spoke by Skype from Alberta. My name is Olivia Marie Goloski. I am a two-spirit artist from Treaty 8 territory. Fort McMurray is a city I was born and raised in, and I now live and reside and work out of Treaty 7 territory, Calgary, Alberta, and I work in film, theater, radio production as a kind of a production stage manager, technician, and a, a playwright and writer. My name is Michelle Decotney. I'm an artist and activist with 30 years history working in the art sector in Calgary, primarily in theater and film. Spent the first 15 years of my career from about 1987 on working with sort of quote unquote mainstream companies. After 15 years of experiencing a number of inequities that I just couldn't tolerate, I decided then to create my own company. So starting around 1996, I was working with a collective of about 25 diverse artists and we decided to launch Stage Left as an alternative theatre company, a performance company, and as a politicized safe space for artists who are focused more on using the arts as a form of activism. For me as an individual, I've always been a bit of an outsider. I've always been somebody who stood up for injustices that I've seen, even as a really young age. And I think for me, that came from the fact that I was a sick kid. I'm somebody who lives with a number of invisible disabilities, so I spent my childhood in and out of hospitals. I had grown up in a working class family too, and I had watched the system, the medical system, just beat my parents to a pulp. Um, I also grew up in a working class neighborhood in Calgary that has since been ridiculously gentrified. But I watched this working class community of people who was very diverse, I have to mention, because poverty seems to be the great leveler. I grew up in a socialist community because it was working class. We took care of each other. Even though we were all poor, none of us ever went hungry because whoever was working that week fed everybody. If you weren't working, you were babysitting. If you were kids, if you weren't in school, you were doing chores for people in the neighborhood, taking care of these kids who were smaller than you, helping out wherever you could. So I just grew up around this real sense of community. So when I survived my childhood, which I wasn't supposed to do, I hadn't thought forward to a career. So I've just moved from opportunity to opportunity, and that opportunity has been moving from helping people to helping people. And after 15, 20 years, I realized that people don't actually need help. So I position myself more as an ally and standing with people and working behind people rather than trying to create opportunities for them. And Stage Left has really been the conduit of my own learning. Um, just taught myself all this stuff and just figured out what needed to be done in the moment and what skills I needed to gather. My orientation as a human being is really collectivist. So my work is and my life is focused in that sort of socialist bent. So I was born and raised in Fort McMurray, Alberta. I am Métis and I'm a member of the Métis Nation of Alberta. And that's something I didn't really know or really have a direct link to until I was in high school. But growing up, we like ate smoked moose meat and my family had a trap line up north. So there was a lot that maybe necessarily wasn't talked about. So I, I was raised in that and 
I grew up in social housing after my parents divorced. My mom was unemployed and so she was raising three kids on her own. And so we grew up in an area that kind of was uh, like for people on fixed incomes and stuff and definitely grew up with a lot more diversity and a lot of fellow indigenous people that kind of really helped, I think, shape who I am today. And then how I got into more theater stuff. I had done some things here and there and I think was always a really creative person and then found myself doing a degree in theater production and was quite shocked, I think, especially because I was also still grappling with my identity and what it meant to be Métis and how do I express that? And as someone who's a white passing Métis, how do I justify claiming that identity when I don't experience the same maybe level of discrimination and racism as my fellow family members or and or friends who are Indigenous who maybe have like a darker skin tone than I do? My minor, I think, really kind of saved me and helped guide me in a lot of ways because I got my minor in Indigenous studies from the University of Calgary. And I had really powerful and strong and resilient professors who were all Indigenous and really helped affirm who I was and affirmed that like a lot of the stuff I had been taught my entire life was actually incorrect. And so I think that really helped shape who I was. But then I was coming up against all of this stuff within the work that I was doing, not only through the literature, like the plays we were reading that would depict Indigenous people, but like in actual work case scenarios. And especially as I started to get more involved in communities that weren't being led by Indigenous people, but were about Indigenous stories, I I kind of felt like a really big tear as to like who has the right to tell our stories and who doesn't and why these people are getting funding when they have access to funding and authority and power when the Indigenous people who should be telling these stories and who should be getting like compensation for this some of the times are some of the most impoverished and oppressed people within our nation. So I think there was a a really huge divide and it kind of came to a head uh, about two years ago. And and really at the time, I actually started to know and meet Michelle and get to know more about Stage Left and another initiative that Michelle had founded, the Calgary Congress for Equity and Diversity in the Arts. And I just kind of, I think, came to a, a breaking point where I had to make a decision where I could no longer silence my own values and identity. And I had to take a strong stand for within myself because it was really damaging, eating me up from the inside out. And I think was creating really toxic professional and non-professional relationships within my life. And so I took a really huge step away from the theater community within Calgary and now exclusively work more with stage left and Indigenous arts organizations that are grassroots that are run and led by Indigenous peoples. Tell me more about the founding of Stage Left and some of the highlights of the company's work over the years. I created Stage Left because it was a last resort. If I wanted to be an artist in Calgary, I had no choice but to create a company in which I could exist fully as I am as a human being. Because the Calgary arts community in Calgary as a community is not radical. Alberta is a hub of white supremacy training. And nowhere is that not talked about more than in Calgary. So Calgary was this absolutely hostile environment for otherness, and the theatre community was no exception to that rule whatsoever. And back in about 1995, I was working extensively with artists with intellectual disabilities, and we had no place to be. There was no welcoming house anywhere in Calgary. So if I wanted to continue my career as an artist and to support those of us who had been ostracized and marginalized from the mainstream theatre community because of our otherness, we had to create our own opportunities. So Stage Left emerged from the grassroots. It emerged out of that uh, long history of resistance to systemic oppression. We decided to come together and create an alternative. But we decided to create an alternative not just in the way that we create art, but the way in which we operate as an arts company. We created Stage Left to provide opportunities to artists, politicize artists that just didn't exist elsewhere. 
We started out as a hugely diverse company, did a lot of Indigenous artwork, not me because I'm not Indigenous, but this cadre of 20, 30 Indigenous artists from Treaty 7 areas that didn't have opportunities to access funding. So we created Stage Left from the bottom up to exploit the system to our advantage. And we've been spending what now 15 years hammering away at the system and we're finally starting to see some positive changes. Interestingly, we started out as a feminist arts company, but it was what we now call intersectional feminism. Back then, we were a collective of about 25 diverse women. It was many black artists, indigenous lesbian artists. But because feminism back in the day, you know, was a little bit too much focused, we now would be critiqued as being white feminism. We didn't define ourselves as a feminist art company because quickly the topics that we were taking on in our productions were more around indigeneity, what we call decolonization work back then. It was also around disability rights because that was something that hadn't been talked about a lot. We really got established through this practice called theatre of the oppressed. It's the marriage of theatre and activism. It's also a grassroots form of popular theater where it's a by the people for the people. So you don't need a venue. You don't need $100,000. You just need a collective will to tell some stories. Theater of the Oppressed was an immediately accessible universal tool that every community that we represented as a company could access, could use to elevate our own knowledge, our own experiences and our own perspectives of the world and also our own resistances to systemic oppressions. So we got established immediately as a center for the theater of the oppressed. I developed a personal relationship with Augusto Buell himself, who's a fellow that invented theater of the oppressed. He became a patron of Stage Left. He endorsed us as a center for the theater of the oppressed. But because we were working so extensively with artists with intellectual disabilities, because I am one of them, I have several learning disabilities and some brain injuries. So I was working with my own communities, but they were diverse communities. But we got pigeonholed right away as a disability arts company because we decided to access the funding system in the arts. And they, of course, have to lock you into boxes. So we began really establishing ourselves in the professional arts community as a disability arts presenter. We had produced a disability arts festival every year in Calgary for 10 years. And a lot of the work that we had developed through that festival was theater of the oppressed base. Our festival wasn't about dazzling the masses, but about animating a disability rights community and allies to activism. We did that up until about 2010, and then we we're just becoming so intersectional that our non-disabled colleagues were getting a little offended that they continued to get shuffled into this identity politics category. So we decided to shut down our disability arts production work and move to more intersectional work. We've been extensively then producing these things called urban interventions, which are pop-up social justice encounters. These are invisible theater scenes. Invisible theater is a theater of the oppressed technique where we go for, I can't really say because they're anonymous, so we have to be careful. I don't want to out anybody. But basically, we create social justice disruptions at things like Toronto Pride or Montreal Pride or the Circle of the Wagons Festival in Calgary, which I'm proud to note just recently changed their name as a result of several interventions that were initiated. Anyway, so the point is, we've always been about focusing on using art as activism. So our tagline has been using the arts to affect personal and social transformation. So over the years, we've produced maybe, uh, I think, 30 digital films, 15 original productions. We've done like at least 350 Theater of the Oppressed pop-up social justice encounters are basically theory of the press projects. We work all over Canada. We've worked in the U.S., Spain, England, a few other places. But it's not about the, the accomplishments. It's about the grassroots movement that we've managed to affect. You know, through theory of the press, we created a global theory of the press feminist network for women jokers. So really the stage left role is to fill the needs that aren't being attended to otherwise. And that's to attend to the political needs of radical artists. Right now, we're actually more in the process of a collaboration. Voices is the Calgary Coalition for People of Color. So potentially doing like a mini documentary series, potentially the first episode being about documenting racism within Calgary. Most of my contact with Stage Left has actually been through CEDA, so the Calgary Congress for Equity and Diversity in the Arts, which Michelle founded three years ago now. 
I was one of the founding members who kind of came to the table. And since then, I've had the immense pleasure of becoming a mentee, I guess, underneath Michelle and Theatre of the Oppressed work and really hoping to get more into that as the years come down. And especially with a focus through like an Indigenous lens, because there's so much work and I think really positive work and change that can happen within Indigenous communities across Canada that I think would really benefit from that kind of work. Part of what we've been doing in Stage Left is putting our production work on hold because we're a grassroots organization, so we're significantly under-resourced. But we're also making a point that diverse artists, you know, we can't be expected to achieve quote-unquote artistic excellence unless we get invested in. So a lot of us are boycotting production work because we're not getting invested in. Our work is being devalued, it's being judged as not good enough because we're scrambling to try to put productions on without the proper resources needed. So Stage Left made a hard choice to decide, you know, we're going to put production work on hold, we're going to continue our pop-up social justice encounters, but we're going to use our theatre of the oppressed practice and we're going to unleash it on the actual arts community. So we're actually using Theatre of the Oppressed as a, a tool to advance arts equity throughout the arts sector throughout Canada right now. And we're having a profound impact. We're focused now on actually making policy change. And, you know, when you come from a socialist background, the arts sector, it's so easy to make change happen. <laughs> I can't believe the potency of this practice. Talk more about Theatre of the Oppressed, about how it works and about why it's important to the networks and communities that you're a part of. Theatre of the Oppressed is a popular theatre method, and really it's by the oppressed for the oppressed. So it's using theatre to break down the fourth wall that was established, you know, through this professional theatre practice that's been entrenched now in what we call modern drama, where you have, you know, professional actors who are accepted as experts telling somebody else's story, usually on stage, and the audience is expected to sit back and be passive witnesses to somebody else's quote-unquote truth. When you go to a regular play, quote-unquote, a mainstream modern drama, you sit back, you watch the play. For two hours, it's a Hamlet. You believe you're in Denmark and you're watching people grapple with their ghosts. And then you go home and you make dinner and you forget about it again. Theater of the Oppressed goes, no, absolutely not. You don't get to leave the theater unchanged. So Theater of the Oppressed breaks down that fourth wall. And it tells stories that are relevant to that audience and motivates them to take action against the injustice. The goal of Theatre of the Oppressed is to turn passive spectators into active spectators by animating the will to intervene against social injustice. And Augusto Boyle created these techniques where you build in what's called identification and recognition. So when people watching this story, they don't see Hamlet on stage. They see their own father, their own brother. They see their own truth. And when you actually see your own truth on stage, you're motivated to get involved in that story. So Theatre of the Press then you just totally breaks down that idea of sitting back and watching a play because you actually give the audience the power to stop the play. When they see stuff in it that's not working for them as a community, they call stop and they get on stage and they actually take over the play and they turn it into what the community needs that story to be. So Theatre of the Press taps into the collective resistance of the community and it is absolutely profound. I've never seen it not work on any community. Popular theatre, which in Theatre of the Press is part of, is a popular education tool. It was a definition for decolonization that really stood out to me and essentially was like the act, whether you are Indigenous or not, of fighting for Indigenous liberation. So for me, that's what this work can do and has like really huge power to give communities the tools that they need to achieve that liberation, to talk about the wounds and the oppression and the, and the hurt, and also to recognize the strength and beauty and the resilience we have as communities and to move forward in a really healthy and cohesive way. For me, this work is really conducive to giving the power back to the people, and that's what needs to happen if we want to actually go forward with this thing that the Canadian government keeps saying, reconciliation.
if we're going to actually commit to that, we have to actually understand what that means and what that means within running organizations or running arts organizations, our governments. And I think people may not necessarily understand or realize that it's like, how do we restructure everything we thought we knew? And say more about what you mean by pop-up social justice encounters. I have to be careful because we need to do them anonymously. And that's a huge part of this is that it's not about creating an ego-based spectacle. Well, they pay attention to me. So I'll just speak generally, though, because we've got this team of uh, about 20 to 30 artists that have been working with Stage Life for 15 years now. And they are really, really radical street artists. So we're giving them the production resources that they need to go out and do the disruptions the social justice disruptions that are needed in their own communities. So one of the things we can talk about is supporting, for example, Black Lives Matter uh, activists, giving them opportunities, training tools so that they can create disruptions. For example, you've seen Black Lives Matter disrupt Toronto Pride. We did a few pop-up social justice encounters in and around and supporting that to signal boost the messages that were coming out through Black Lives Matter team. They're artistic interventions, so they don't threaten people. They're not protest-based. They're just there for people to tell their truth in a way that's right for them and to stimulate larger dialogue within social justice events. Because we're seeing too many social justice events that are focused on single issues that are advancing you know, middle-class activism. So really, they're just about attending to the systemic roots of oppression. And they're really fun. Tell me more about the policy work that's your focus at the moment. The Canada Council for the Arts hosted this thing called the Equity Sounding, where they invited a number of diverse arts advocates to the table so we could just finally say to them, these are our frustrations with the system, these are why we're not bothering with the system, these are the changes you can make. And it was historic, but I got my butt kicked exponentially by my peers because I went into separatist mode and said, to hell with this, we're just going to work from the grassroots out and work with our own communities and do what we need to do. But I had you know, potent, potent, potent diverse arts activists look me in the eye and say, we need you to get your butt at these tables. We need to access that power. So we did, we insisted, we claimed our space at policymaking tables, and we have insisted that the arts funders actually look at what the root causes are, because inclusion, you know, they say, oh, we're going to include diverse artists in a corrupt system. That's not helping. So a bunch of us were launching this sort of national arts equity intervention council. Ironically, we're working with funders because they are scratching their heads saying, we don't know how to do diversity. We are there to say, yeah, it's because you need to prioritize equity rather than inclusion. So there's a huge team of us that are using arts equity education and activism as a way in which to shake up, to decolonize the arts systems themselves. We have gone completely to disrupting the neoliberalization of diversity in the arts. So rather than allowing this cycle to continue, we've got, for example, Olivia and her team, the Treaty 7 Film Collective, Indigenous Resilience in Music. We are claiming our rightful place at the power-making and decision-making tables. So we are disrupting that allyship of doing for rather than standing behind. And that's one of the most profound changes I'm seeing. And it's happening across the nation and funders are starting to see that change. And I'm really proud to say that part of the work that we've been doing through CETA has initiated this national change in the arts sector. We don't have the solutions yet, but we're moving there because we're finally getting those people with power and influence to have the right conversation. And the conversation isn't about diversity in the arts and how to include more of it, but how to create an equitable environment in which diversity is valued. We've created this profound shift in focus instead of, you know, the mainstream privileged people, including us others. Now it's us others demanding our equal share of the resources. For me, I keep going back to socialism. It's just a redistribution of wealth because the arts have always been romanticized as a site of social justice. So a bunch of us have finally just said, you know what, that's absolute and utter bullshit. And it's time to figure out why we're in this cycle and it's time to disrupt it. And I'm seeing this wave of change 
that's why we created CETA. It's to advance this thing that we're calling reciprocity, which is if you're going to do diversity, you have to rely on the expertise of diverse artists. And you have to engage with us and you have to value our skills and our knowledge and compensate us for them. And we're starting to see the sector starting to clue into that, that they're not the bosses of diversity because they're not the experts of diversity because they're not members of diverse communities. And I think another thing is creating like alternative models of excellence, even within funding and the power of saying no. I'm also one of the stage managers or production stage managers for Red Talks, which is a speaker series that's based on having Indigenous people share knowledge and values and viewpoints with the world, and as well as having allies come in and share that. And we recently had a speaker series out on the Enoch Nation, just outside of Edmonton, Alberta, and the Treaty 6 territory. And while we were getting our resources together, uh, we had been approached by quite a large oil and gas company to give us like a good chunk of money and the organization Red Talks refused the oil and gas money. So I think that sets a precedent for other organizations, especially ones that want to be more radical, right? That you can do it and you don't have to take money from the companies that are oppressing the people that you want to be giving voice to. That's part of what we're trying to use CETA for too, is to find that knowledge, exactly that knowledge and document it and make the rest of the sector aware of the fact that there are other non-corporate capitalist ways of engaging in art production and dissemination. Because the influence of corporate capitalism in the arts has just been disastrous for diverse artists because it's imposing Eurocentric notions of artistic excellence. It's turning the arts into a popularity contest. There's just nothing equitable about the corporate capitalist system of arts funding and art support. What's coming up for Stage Left? The biggest change is we just publicly are shifting, like I talked about earlier, from a production house and production work to a resource for the rest of the art sector. So we're positioning ourselves as a hub of excellence in equity and diversity in the arts. We're developing tools. And basically, we're going hell-bent on two focuses. First of all, is generating cross-cultural solidarity within those of us working from the grassroots in. And then it also focused on creating a national momentum around the need for arts equity education for those people who are running arts institutions. And then the other thing that we're really focused on is securing production resources for grassroots companies, you know, for example, the the groups that Olivia is working with, so that these groups can focus on unleashing the efficacy of their art potential, their artistic potency, and don't have to get bogged down in the inequities of the bureaucracies. Stage left, you know, we've accessed that system, so we're going to exploit our access to that system as much as we can on behalf of equalizing the distribution of resources. And nationally, too, we're partnered with the Professional Association of Canadian Theatres to uh, unleash a program called All In, which is arts equity training for all of the major theatre companies across the country. So we're launching a small program in Calgary as a model of excellence, and we're expanding it throughout the nation. And then we're going to be hosting high-impact events. So, for example, in Calgary, we want to host a counter-conference called the Art of Solidarity, where we bring all of these grassroots organizations to the table to share knowledge and share our expertise with each other to foster cross-cultural solidarity, network building, and to signal boost our artwork, which are largely examples of decolonialized form of art. There's this huge gathering in 2020 in Ottawa for national arts presenters and international arts presenters. So we're creating a models of alternative and equitable arts presenting, and we'll be hosting a mini conference within that larger conference and teaching people alternative models of artistic engagement and dissemination. You have been listening to my interview with Michelle DeCotney and Olivia Marie Goloski about the work of Stage Left Productions and of the Calgary Congress for Equity and Diversity in the Arts. To learn more about their work, go to stage-left.org and calgaryartsequity.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, 
or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.